This program is made possible entirely by you, the listeners. Please consider becoming a member or making a one-time donation at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with actually lots of clips today from Rachel Maddow and then others from Citizen Radio, The Progressive, The Daily Show, and Midweek Politics with a bonus video clip for our iTunes app users, again, from Rachel Maddow. It started here on this show, um, and now it, it doesn't end here, but it does take a very sharp turn. Sixteen months ago, West Point graduate, Arab linguist, Iraq veteran, First Lieutenant Dan Choi made this very dramatic news right here on our air. I am an infantry platoon leader in the New York Army National Guard, and by saying three words to you today, I am gay, those three words are a violation of Title X of the U.S. Code. Today, nearly a year and a half after that announcement, Lieutenant Dan Choi has been fired from the U.S. military. Quote, based on the approved board findings that First Lieutenant Choi did publicly admit on more than one occasion in person and through the media that he is a homosexual, such conduct being in violation of 10 U.S. Code Section 654, subsection B2, I direct First Lieutenant Choi be discharged from the New York Army National Guard with an honorable characterization of service. Ironically, the name of the adjutant general signing off on Lieutenant Joy's discharge is Brigadier General Patrick Murphy. A coincidence. No relation to another Patrick Murphy, also an Iraq veteran, now a congressman, who has led the way in Washington for the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, policy that has now claimed Dan Choi's career. Lieutenant Dan Choi joins us now. Dan, thank you very much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you back on the show. Great to be with you. I hope the audio doesn't cut out this time. Yeah, that did that very <laughs> dramatic first night. Uh, Dan, well, we can't blame the government because there's no conspiracy this time, right? right? There's no reason why they'd cut me off. At this point, yeah. At this point, you. At this point, you are a civilian. Uh, I mean, this must be a very hard day for you, Dan. How are you doing? It's the first time uh, I'm a civilian since I was 18 years old. It's you know, as, as much as you can prepare for this kind of. Uh, Consequence, And I knew exactly what I was getting into when I appeared on your show the very first time. Uh, as much as you build up your armor and get ready for those words, saying that you're fired, you, you can't deal with that pain and the emotion. I mean, I, I think back on my entire time in the military, from the days that I was at West Point to getting ready for deployment, infantry training, uh, and even the activism. All of it comes up, and, and it's a big emotional roller coaster. Uh, and it's it's painful and it hurts and I I mean right now my career is over but I know that there are still hundreds of other people that are going to be fired and go through the same thing throughout this year when you look back on these 16 months after coming out all the activism you've engaged in getting arrested protesting this policy serving with your unit while being openly gay do you, do you feel regret do you wish you had stayed in the closet longer and waited for the policy to end Absolutely not. Being in the closet is a poison. It's a, it's a deadly, toxic disease that people don't even realize how difficult that is until they're finally out. There are a lot of times when I look back at my time in, in service and I told myself, well, why didn't I come out or why did I join? I mean, I knew I was gay. Uh, I didn't want to come out to my parents. My dad is a, is a minister. He's affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. He didn't want to know that his son, who went to West Point and went to Iraq as an infantryman, is also gay. He just wouldn't know how to deal with that. There's so many people that have a don't ask, don't tell in their own hearts and in their own homes, and they deal with that same kind of enforced shame 
and that kind of enforced hatred of themselves, and it really tears away at the very fabric of who they are. Do you think, Dan, that your, your civil disobedience efforts getting arrested over the course of the last year and a half, do you think that the, the, that activism contributed to you being discharged now? Do you think that was part of it? Well, it'd be very difficult for me to say that since the charges were dropped at the very last minute uh, by the federal government and by the D.C. government for whatever reason. Um, a lot of people have seen that actions not only in uh, achieving LGBT rights, gay and transgender rights, uh, is effective, but it's been effective throughout our entire history. From the time of the Boston Tea Party throughout the American Revolution, we've seen military officers get on up and, and act up because they know that the meaning of service and the meaning of our country is not wrapped up in a sentiment or a, an emotion or a, an argument about what the uniform signifies, that uniform that I put on, that uniform that I've worn since the very first days at West Point, that stands for fighting for freedom and justice. And if there is no fight for freedom and justice, then nobody deserves to wear that uniform. Dan, if the policy is repealed, and sources do say it could happen in the spring, in less than a year, do you think that you would sign up again? Do you know what's next for you? Well, I don't base a lot of my timelines or I don't think anybody should base their actions on a political uh, guesstimate. I think that if we were to do that, then we wouldn't be where we're at today. Uh, but I know for sure that if the law is repealed and uh, President Obama finally takes action and we can go back, of course, in a heartbeat. There's nothing that I should be afraid of. I've been serving openly in my infantry unit, and there's been nothing but positive impact. There's no reason why anybody needs to be afraid. There's no need for a survey. There's no need for a poll. There's no need for people to put up shower curtains because they're afraid of what might happen. I've been serving for, for 17 months quite openly, and I've seen nothing but positive impact when you tell people around you, people who you work with, the truth about who you are. There's nothing but an increase in unit cohesion, in teamwork, in trust. Honesty is the fabric, the foundation of all of that. Here is our interview with Dan Choi. The Democratic Party appears to take it for granted that the gay community will vote for them. But if Democrats, including President Obama, continue to withhold their support for gay marriage and repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, do you think there will come a time when the gay community must stop being doormats and refuse to donate money to Democrats until they acknowledge the gay community's basic human rights? Every civil rights movement and every community, every human progress movement has had to learn that very, um, very difficult language, a uh, very difficult lesson. Uh, when you think about uh, how these um, political systems uh, throughout our our history have oppressed um, all of the the groups uh, that we see. Uh, you know, who have achieved 
some measure of, of uh, dignity and, and uh, respect as well as equal rights, um, you have to uh, stand up for yourself first. And you cannot say that uh, full equality and full dignity is going to be achieved simply through legislative means. Obviously, it's important, uh, and the way that the laws are interpreted and, and, and executed uh, and enforced uh, have huge bearing on the ways that we can feel uh, dignified or safe uh, or equally protected, of course. I'm not, I'm not going to say that we don't need a political process and in that way need uh, allies, but um, first and foremost, any community, any people need to find their, um, their platform of morality that they exist uh, as a fully dignified uh, people. And uh, until you can do that, until you can stand up um, and say that regardless of political party, regardless of the amount of, of money that you give to a party that, that turns around and, and says, thank you for your donation, you're still a second-class faggot, and I'm just going to keep on using your, your money, and you're, uh, you're going to like it uh, because you have nobody else that you can deal with, uh, that you can trust. Until we can actually say that um, I am somebody, I am... Uh, an absolutely uh, respectful uh, and um, dignity-deserving um, member of society. Until we can say that, um, you know, that there's very little that uh, is progressing in the real terms of of, uh, you know, of the human progress. Uh, that's one thing that that we as uh, LGBT Americans have to understand as part of our community. Um, if you, um, you know, take a look at all of the uh, other civil rights movements in our, in our country, they've had to um, also decide whether they're going to uh, put all their eggs in the Democrat or whatever uh, party it was that uh, used progressive language and um, sometimes exploited um, you know, progressive uh, platforms uh, pretending to have a monopoly on them, um, you know, we have to realize that um, we don't always have a true ally um, in those uh, who have a political career and that's the only thing that they're interested in. I personally um, have a very difficult time when somebody criticizes me uh, for not um, cutting the uh, Democrats some slack, particularly those who are uh, facing an election uh, because uh, they uh, need all the support they can get and uh, they are my friends, aren't they? I mean, don't, don't you think that you should be easy on them and why would you protest them and why would you, because don't you know when the other guy gets elected then you're going to be in an even more difficult situation. Well, for me, you know, I, I find it very difficult to hear those messages um, for anybody to say that um, I need to be um, helping somebody else keep their job uh, when uh, they had promised me uh, that they would do everything that they could and in their power um, throughout the past six years or, or however many years in office, um, 
the fruits of their labor are me getting fired. I'm the last person that they should be crawling to uh, for any kind of sympathy as far as job protection. I can feel it in my you can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. When 9-11 happened in September of 2001, Jonathan J. Hopkins was a brand new graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Out of a class of 933 that spring at West Point, Mr. Hopkins was fourth overall, fourth out of 933. He received the Knox Award, which is given to the cadet with the highest rated military efficiency in the entire class. As a newly minted army officer, Jonathan Hopkins deployed into combat at the start of the Iraq War. When a 4,000 soldier army brigade went into Kirkuk at the start of the war, Hopkins' platoon, the platoon he led, was one of the first. Ten days later, he was the lead element of his battalion in a vehicular assault on Kirkuk. Over the next several years, Jonathan Hopkins would rise to the rank of captain and serve three combat deployments in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He became commander of a striker infantry company. He earned three bronze stars, one with valor. Yesterday, now former U.S. Army Captain Jonathan J. Hopkins was fired because regardless of all that I just said about him, our country now officially rejects his service and wants him out of the military because of don't ask, don't tell. Joining us now is Jonathan Hopkins, discharged yesterday from the United States Army. Uh, Mr. Hopkins, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. I know that you received your discharge orders yesterday. How long did the overall process of, of separating you from the military take under Don't Ask, Don't Tell? It took almost exactly 14 months from the time they first started the investigation until I left the Army, uh, during which I continued to work day-to-day uh, -day business just as I had before. So over those 14 months, I mean, you were still in the Army for a long time while this process was unfolding. Were there negative incidents, negative reaction of any kind amongst your fellow soldiers once that process started? Really, no. Uh, my experiences with my chain of command and my bosses and the peers that I worked directly with was really actually quite outstanding. They're professional. We worked in a... In a element of mutual respect, uh, which is exactly as it existed before I was outed about 14 months ago. Uh, I, I've talked to people that used to be in my infantry company, you know, some of whom may have assumed that I was gay beforehand because there's not too many unmarried captains and commanders in the Army. And even them, they assumed that, that when I was in the unit that maybe he's gay but he's a good commander is exactly what they've said. And so that didn't really matter because what mattered is he took care of us. Uh, he trained for combat. He worked well with all of us. Uh, so that's fundamentally what it came down to. I understand that you, you didn't voluntarily come out, that somebody else outed you uh, to the Army without get, asking you to get into any details that you don't want to get into. Is that basically the situation? That's basically the situation, except for if I take you back 14 months, uh, my battalion commander brought me in. It was the same day that it was announced that I was on promotion for, to major. 
a year early, which only a small minority of the Army uh, receives. At the same time, he said, but also you're under investigation for being gay. It really kind of exemplifies the paradox here that some of the people the Army judges to be among the best also might be taken out by, the, by this policy that isn't based on your performance, but instead on, on how you were born. Um, so when he informed me of that, uh, I talked to my chaplain for a couple hours uh, just to make sure I was making the right choice, and I walked back into his office, and I told him what the truth was, because I essentially had assumed, I came to the conclusion that I'd lived a government-mandated lie to cover up who I was to actually have to fib a bit so that I wasn't ever telling anybody that I was gay. And that lie really just had to come to an end. It was time to just be honest. That's, that's what we've been, we're dedicated to from the time we entered West Point all through our, our military career, uh, duty on our country or the Army values of honor and integrity, they matter. And I thought that applied here. How much did you think about the prospect of the policy being changed, uh, the prospect that if you if you just held long uh, held on long enough, the policy might be changed and you might be okay to stay in without lying. I know that I and even uh, some of my friends who I also know who are, who are gay have thought a lot about it. They, it's really just kind of like a survivor mentality to a point. I mean, you focused mostly on your job, but this is a constant um, severe distraction. It it causes you to be paranoid, etc. And so. During that time, um, you're just hoping you can make it to a situation that nobody's going to find a reason to want to out you or somebody might not find out accidentally, and that you can just make it until the policy changes, which everybody seems to assume is going to happen in the next year or two. Are you, um, are you angry? I mean, after giving the Army <laughs> more, than, more than 10 years of your life, after West Point, after three combat tours, I mean, to, to find yourself a civilian for the first time today, do you feel mad? I, I don't think that's the right emotion. I mean, the bottom line is, I love the army. I've always loved the army, or else I wouldn't have spent, I wouldn't have spent nine years depriving myself of the ability to have happy personal relationships with others and a, a, a reasonably successful personal life, and just focused professionally. Um, because I loved what I was doing. I would, thought it was. I thought the people I did that work with were incredible. So uh, the Army is just a bunch of people. It's, it's 530,000 people, most of which I, would, I enjoy serving with. So I, I can't be mad at the Army, although this whole process has gone through its times of devastation initially, a bit of anger and bitterness for a brief period of time, and it's best, best gotten over, and then going through a period of sadness that, yes, I'm getting out, and a degree of understanding and trying to learn from this period of adversity, because given the the experience and the negative aspects of this experience, the only thing that can be gotten from it is to learn and to grow. What is next for you? After this, I'll be, I'm heading out to Georgetown here in just a few days to uh, study national security policy uh, for a master's degree in that. Um, I expect that, I mean, this, this whole issue with me leaving, leaving the military has kind of left its mark as well. So certainly, I'm going to do what I can to help uh, change the policy, help people see the light that judging people based on their performance is what has always mattered in the military, whether we're overturning segregation or integration of women, or with this issue. That's what matters to keeping soldiers alive. So uh, serving in whatever capacity I can to help along with that, whether it's working with groups like Knights Out or OutServe, a newly formed one that has uh, quite some potential to have impact, that's something that I hope to be involved in because we all care about um, trying to do the right thing by the soldiers in our military. 
Captain Jonathan Hopkins fired from the U.S. Army under Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy as of yesterday. Uh, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for your service. Have a good night, Rachel. At this point, I'm sure in certain quarters in Washington, we are being discussed as unseemly for interviewing people whose military careers the Commander-in-Chief is currently, right now, ending, despite all his professed urgency to the contrary. I look forward eagerly to the complaints. Thankfully, protests go viral quickly in this day and age. Just ask Target. After the company donated 150 grand to a business group backing far-right and anti-gay Republican Tom Emmer for governor of Minnesota, Target realized belatedly it had painted a big red Target on its back. The company, which is based in Minneapolis, sponsors the Twin Cities Gay Pride Festival. Well, you can imagine the reaction from gay rights groups in Minnesota and across the country, as well as from Target's employees, some of whom flooded the company with complaints. Anti-target groups cropped up on Facebook and move on got 260,000 people to sign an online petition boycotting the company and it organized protests at Target stores around the country. On Thursday, Target actually apologized. CEO Greg Steinhoffel wrote employees to say he was genuinely sorry. He added, The diversity of our team is an important aspect of our unique culture and our success as a company. And we didn't mean to disappoint you, our team, or our valued guests. This is a great citizen victory in response to companies that are now trying to buy elections after the Citizens United Supreme Court case. We need to duplicate the success so that any company that tries to buy a political race will pay a steep price and have a target on its back. There is a long, weird history of using comics, using the comic book format to make essentially public service announcements to address social problems. Like, for example, poison, addressed here in comic book form with the help of Dennis the Menace. Or drug use, addressed here with the help of two attractive blonde comic druggies. These and many other attempts to harness the power of comics to address social issues are chronicled at the excellent website Comics with Problems. Our friends at boingboing.net this week alerted us to the fact that Comics with Problems had posted a rare find. It's called Dignity and Respect. It appears to be a U.S. military effort to convey through comics the appropriate implementation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
They apparently published it in 2001, which means that eight years into the don't ask, don't tell policy, that policy was working so well, the army had to turn to comic books to try to convey to soldiers what the heck the policy meant. But when you look at the details, the confusion is maybe understandable. Take, for example, the definition of homosexual conduct as described in the comic book. Quote, the army defines homosexual conduct as an act or a statement or propensity to engage in homosexual acts. The solicitation of another to engage in homosexual acts and a homosexual marriage or attempted marriage. You tried and failed to get married? You got cold feet, maybe? Okay, so maybe how people get fired isn't always clear, um, but that's why we turn to the Rachel Maddow Show's comic book voiceover theater for clarification. Sir, PFC Howard reporting is ordered. PFC Howard, I've received a report that you were seen engaging in a homosexual act. I consider this information to be credible. I'll be conducting an inquiry and would like to ask you some questions. But first, I must inform you of your rights under Article 31. Do you understand your rights as I explain them? Yes, sir, I do. But I don't understand what this is about. As I said, I received a report that you and another male were seen engaging in a homosexual act in the barracks yesterday. Sir, I would like to talk to a defense counsel before making any further statement. Fine, PFC Howard, I understand. The ISG will assist you to get an appointment with an attorney. By the way, if you need to talk with someone else, the only other person you can talk to in confidence is the chaplain. Let the ISG know if you want an appointment with him, too. Soon after PFC Howard leaves... Ma'am, I wanted to give you an update on PFC Howard's case. Good. How's it going? Well, as you said... PFC Howard decided not to make a statement. He's contacting military counsel through the ISG. Very good, Captain. Thanks for the updates. A few days later, PFC Howard consults with a trial defense attorney. Sir, can you explain the process and what will happen to me? Mm, sure. First, let me cover the possible actions your commander could take and potential discharges you could receive if you were involved with homosexual conduct. Later, that very same comic book, based on my review of the statements by Sergeants Hall and Johnson and discussion with your chain of command, I have decided to recommend the initiation of separation action. You will receive a memorandum notifying you of the convening authority's action. You may talk to your military counsel about your options. Would you like to discuss it at this time? No, sir. I think I will see my military counsel before I talk about it. Okay, you are dismissed. A few weeks pass. ISG, I just received word that PFC Howard's discharge has been approved. It's all so tidy that way. That's what they say it happens when other people out you. What about when you out yourself? Dignity and respect comic book, what say you? Ma'am, can I talk to you? Sure. Is it okay if the ISG stays? Yes, ma'am. What's on your mind, Sergeant Williams? Ma'am, I've been talking to Chaplain Ayers over the past few weeks, and I think that I may be homosexual. Stop right there. Before you go any further, I want to be sure you understand that under the homosexual conduct policy, saying you're homosexual can be a basis for discharge. You may also want to talk to a legal assistant officer about this matter. Yes, ma'am. I understand. I, I have already talked with the legal assistance officer as well. Do you understand the Army's homosexual conduct policy? Yes, ma'am, I do, but I've been struggling with this a long time and decided I had to tell you that I am homosexual. Do you understand the consequences of what you are telling me? 
Yes, ma'am. I needed to let you know, and I, I do understand the consequences of my actions. Well then, Sergeant, I will talk with the SJA and Battalion Commander. I may have some more questions for you after that, so that I can confirm you are serious about this. I also want to make sure that you understand the implications of your statement. I understand, ma'am. Thank you for your time, ma'am. No need to thank me, Sergeant Williams. Later, in the commander's office... So you're certain about this sergeant's sincerity? ISG, I think so. Especially after talking with the platoon sergeant and platoon leader. We don't see any other reason for Sergeant Williams to make this statement at this time. So what are you going to do, ma'am? Based on Williams' statement, I may have to initiate discharge procedures. But first, I've got to contact the battalion commander and then get advice from SJA. Captain Smith calls the battalion commander and then SJA. Major Storm, sir, this is Captain Smith. I am considering a possible homosexual conduct separation against Sergeant John Williams in my command. Later that week... How are things going with Sergeant Williams, ma'am? After talking with the SJA, the battalion commander and I agreed to recommend discharge for Sergeant Williams. Getting discharged with dignity and respect, according to the Army's comic book on how to do it. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The two ongoing, seemingly never-ending wars this country needs every soldier we can get. Or do we? Jason Jones filed this report. Don't ask, don't tell. President Obama has pledged to repeal it. And while we've all heard the conventional arguments against allowing homosexuals to serve openly, Defend the Family President Scott Lively knows the real reason we shouldn't. Open homosexuals are distinct from everybody else, men and women, in being exceptionally brutal and savage. Really? Very dangerous people. And your proof? Adolf Hitler used homosexual soldiers because they were more savage than natural men. Explain. They didn't have the, the restraint that a normal man has, and so they were, would, uh, it was easier for them uh, to do some of the terrible things that the Nazis did. Yes, Lively's exhaustive research has revealed that the atrocities of the Third Reich weren't committed by the Gestapo or the SS, but by the far more savage pink shirts during their vicious glitzkriegs. How high up did homosexuality go in the Nazi party? It was at the top. Hitler was a homosexual. Uh, his inner circle was always uh, filled with homosexuals. His, his bodyguards were homosexual. His chauffeur was homosexual. The Nazis were not only gay, the Nazis met in a gay bar. This is... Drives you crazy. It's unbelievable. Like, seriously, it's, un it's unbelievable. But maybe that's because we've learned about the Nazis from so-called historians like Dagmar Herzog. Were the Nazis gay? 
Why does it matter? Because gays are more savage than regular people. The entirety of the Holocaust is being implemented and um, supervised by predominantly heterosexual people. Hitler, gay. There is absolutely no evidence for Hitler being a homosexual. Let's meet in the middle. Let's call him a bisexual. There is no evidence for his bisexuality. I'm offering you a compromise here. The Nazis specifically persecuted homosexuals, and the prosecutions and persecutions escalated from 1935 on. Was this persecution proof they weren't gay, or a devious Nazi tactic? The Nazis did persecute homosexuals to distract public attention away from their homosexuality. So that which you hate the most, you secretly are. I am not gay. <laughs> I didn't say you were. What Lively couldn't see was the huge upside to allowing gay soldiers to serve. Why don't we harness the power of these savages? We're in two unwinnable wars. Let's use them. In terms of ac activities on the battlefield, uh, you just don't want to have people there that have no moral restraint. So how do the other countries that have gays serving openly in their military control their soldiers? You know, countries like Argentina, Austria, Australia. I don't think that that's been going on for very long. I actually wasn't finished. Belgium, Bermuda, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, I have, Peru, I have Philippines. Been, I've been to many of those countries. Romania, Russia, Slovenia, South Africa, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Uruguay. I didn't even know the gays were in some of those militaries, but it doesn't change the essential factors of human nature. To find out how terrifying open homosexuals could be, I sat down with a group of them at the redundantly named New York Gay Community Center. They could explode into a sadistic frenzy at any moment, so I came prepared. Should we allow... Yeah, we can't we hear you. We can't hear you. I'll lift it up for the interview. Just don't attack my face. Has either one of us attacked you yet? No, because I'm protected. You guys are killing machines. There's no reason why we would be any less professional than soldiers in any of the countries that have uh, openly gay service members in their militaries. Scott Lively says, if we start allowing gays to serve openly, the next thing we know, uh, you know, we're Nazis. That is completely ridiculous. I think it is the worst kind of hate to accuse us of being Nazis. It's really disgusting I mean, that these comparisons are being made. Very same things that were said about my own. It's definitely frustrating. Oh my God. Their rage was boiling over. I had to escape. They were right behind me, ready to rip me limb from limb and explode into a vicious bloodbath. Oh. Oh. oh, damn it. Huh. Turns out they weren't even following me. They're just that devious. Which is why Scott Lively's mission is so difficult. It's not easy to be a person who tells the truth uh, when a large part of the population doesn't want to hear it, frankly. I, I, I wish I had gotten a different assignment, actually. What would that assignment be? Well, I would have loved to have just been hanging out on the beach someplace, but instead I got stuck with dealing with homosexual Nazis. Yes, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Actually, wait, no. No one has to do it.
Army's physical fitness test um, is a test that I don't want to take. And you probably don't want to take it either. But if you are in the Army, you're taking it. Uh, it is a blunt, simple, standardized test for the fitness level of anyone in the Army. Now, the test has three components. How fast can you run two miles? In two minutes, how many push-ups can you do? And in two minutes, how many sit-ups can you do? For each of those things, the way it works is, for, for the two-mile run and the sit-ups and the push-ups, you get a score that's based on the Army's standardized scoring criteria. The way it works is you get, essentially, a maximum of 100 points for each of those things. Here's how Cadet Sergeant Catherine Miller did on her Army physical fitness test. For a 17 to 21 year old female, uh, you rate the maximum 100 points, the top score, if you can complete a two mile run in 15 minutes and 36 seconds. Katie Miller did it in 13 minutes and 40 seconds. She beat the 100% performance time by nearly two minutes. For push-ups, she rate the maximum 100 points, if the top score, if in two minutes you can do 42. Katie Miller did 68. For sit-ups, you rate the maximum 100 points, the top score, if in two minutes you can do 78 sit-ups. Katie Miller did 100 which means that on the Army Physical Fitness Test, out of a theoretical maximum score of 300 points, Katie Miller scored a 367, which you can cuddle up with the next time your self-esteem gets the better of you. Katie Miller is at West Point. She's due to graduate in the spring of 2012. She is a graduate of U.S. Army Airborne School already. Her grade point average is 3.829 out of 4.0. The subjective judgment of cadet supervisors of her military performance is graded even higher than that. It is over 3.9. She is ranked ninth overall in her class of more than 1,100 West Point cadets. But she will not be graduating from West Point. She is transferring out. She's leaving for Yale because she says the don't ask, don't tell policy means that her integrity has been compromised, which means she is unable to live up to Army values. Cadet Sergeant Catherine A. Miller submitted her resignation on Monday. She joins us from West Point now. Cadet Miller, uh, Katie, thanks very much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, where exactly are you right now? I can tell you're on a webcam, but I can't tell where you are. Um, I'm staying in temporary barracks at West Point while I go through my resignation. I understand you submitted your resignation um, earlier this week. What's, what's the process now? Are, are you st still technically a cadet at this point? Uh, yes, ma'am. I have not officially been out processed yet, so I remain a, a cadet at West Point. You wrote in your resignation statement, um, which I read today, um, I have created a heterosexual dating history to recite to fellow cadets when they inquire. I've endured sexual harassment for fear of being accused as a lesbian by rejecting or reporting these events. I have lied to my classmates and compromised my integrity and my identity by adhering to existing military policy. When you submitted that resignation, what was the reaction from your chain of command? Uh, well, actually, um, my chain of command was initially very supportive. Uh, my TAC officer, the first level um, of my uh, chain of command, uh, was extremely supportive. He, he maintained professionalism throughout the entire time, and he, he made it clear that he was here to help me um, and that he was going to accept my resignation. Um, then also, when I went to the next higher up, uh, my regimental tactical officer, he accepted my resignation, um, though he was, he was weary uh, of my intentions. Uh, where have your where have your intentions in the sense that he wasn't sure that you were resigning for the reasons you said you were resigning? Uh, he he wasn't sure that was a good enough uh, reason to resign. Um, 
so I, I was scrutinized a little bit for that, but uh, but beyond that, uh, they've been very supportive and professional the entire time. When you describe the the compromise to your integrity by adhering to existing military policy, when you describe what it's been like to essentially be to, to be at West Point with this policy in place in the military. Why did that become unsustainable or unbearable for you? Why did you feel that you had to resign? What drove the timing for you? Um, well, it's interesting because uh, your first two years at West Point, you can actually resign at any time without owing the Army any sort of commitment um, or any sort of recruitment uh, afterward. However, upon starting your third year, uh, a contract must be signed, uh, essentially committing yourself for 10 years to the military. And for the first two years, um, I, I was just sort of learning about um, learning about myself and, and not really understanding um, the, the repression that I was feeling. And then now that it's come down time to, to make the decision, I'm going to my third year. Um, I can't bring myself to, to sign on the dotted line to commit myself to the military uh, for 10 years while the policy remains in place. You obviously knew about the don't ask, don't tell policy when you applied to West Point in the first place and you described sort of a couple of years of personal growth, de development of your own personal standing over those couple of years. But when you entered West Point, did you think that don't ask, don't tell would be repealed by now or that even if it was still in place that you'd be able to endure it? Um, before uh, high school, I was very much in the closet. I hadn't come to terms terms with myself uh, until until high school. Um, but around that same time, I knew that I really wanted to go to West Point and I really wanted to serve my country. And and I was able to to put my a personal aspect of my uh, of my identity in the back seat, and that that being my sexuality, um, so I could f fulfill these wishes. But. But being recloseted has um, has been a, a, a much bigger challenge than I ever anticipated. It's taken a much bigger toll socially, mentally, emotionally than I could have imagined. And um, I, I completely underestimated this uh, when, when I decided to, to enter into the military. If the policy were repealed, um, if the policy were repealed um, either anytime soon or in the next few years, would you consider rejoining the Army? Absolutely. Um, I'm actually really committed to, to military service, and this is something that's near and dear to, to my heart. And uh, should Don't Ask, Don't Tell be repealed uh, soon, um, I would definitely reconsider returning to West Point, or um, if it's not repealed that soon, then to, to commission via a different, uh, different source and serve my country as a, an officer in the United States Army. Cadet Katie Miller, uh, top 10 West Point cadet, who's going to be attending Yale next year on scholarship. Uh, thank you for being here, and good luck to you through what I'm sure is a pretty traumatic process at this point. Thanks for talking to us tonight. Thank you for having me, ma'am. So the White House this week has made it clear that they are mystified, mystified by liberals not being more happy with them. Mystified, it's crazy. Liberals ought to be drug tested. What do they have to complain about?
when U.S. District Court Judge Joseph Toro ruled on Thursday that same-sex couples deserve the same federal benefits as heterosexual couples and that the Defense of Marriage Act was invalid in Massachusetts, he moved the day forward when gays and lesbians will finally be full citizens in this country. That day's arriving faster than almost anyone could have imagined 50 years ago. Before Stonewall, before the women's movement, the cause of gay liberation wasn't even on the agenda of most progressives, much less the radar screen of the media or the mind of the general public. What we've witnessed over these last five decades is nothing short of nonviolent revolution. Today, for the most part, gays and lesbians can be open about who they are. Today, gays and lesbians serve openly in Congress and take open, prominent roles in our culture. Yet still today, gays and lesbians don't have marriage equality across the land. Yet still today, gays and lesbians can be fired in a majority of states simply because their employers are bigoted against their sexuality. These outrages won't last long now, though. Gays and lesbians have won the argument and are winning their freedom in a glorious revolution. When you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out We have a correction of sorts to make tonight. It was believed both by us and by guests who have appeared on the show, and frankly by lots of other people, that the survey the Pentagon is doing right now to determine how members of the military feel about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was an unprecedented thing. We and others believed that when the military had gone through other forms of desegregation, either by gender or by race, that they didn't conduct this kind of a survey, that prior moves to desegregate the military were top-down decisions that were just made without asking the average infantryman what he thought about the policy change. Turns out that's not true. Earlier this week, a Pentagon spokesperson told The Advocate magazine that Defense Department historians had found evidence that the military did, in fact, conduct surveys about racial integration in the military prior to changing the policy in the 40s. Armed with that clue, the folks at Think Progress deserve big props for actually trooping down to the National Archives and digging up some of the surveys that the military conducted around racial integration in the 1940s, ahead of President Truman's 1948 order to desegregate. Remember, the basic history here is that in 1948, after generations of African Americans had served in separate all-black units in the U.S. military, President Truman, as Commander-in-Chief, made the decision to end legal racial discrimination in the military. Now remember, this was 1948, six years before the landmark Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education, mandating that schools be integrated, seven years before the Montgomery bus boycott, 15 years before Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, 16 years before the Civil Rights Act passed. Interracial marriage was illegal in more than two dozen states in 1948. In other words, ending racial segregation in the military was a very big deal in 1948. But the military did ask the troops what they thought about the issue beforehand. And the results were, I mean, on the one hand, astonishing, and on the other hand, weirdly, 
totally what you'd expect. Here's what I mean. Um, a 1942, no, a November 1942 survey of white enlisted men's feelings about African Americans in the Air Force found that, quote, an overwhelming majority of the men feel that Negro and white soldiers should be separated both during and after training. Check out the bar graph on this one. 82% of enlisted men thought African Americans should attain sep- attend separate training schools. 76% of them wanted them to be in separate combat crews. And 74% thought there should be separate all-black ground crews as well. Here's another survey from 1947, cleverly titled, Attitudes of Officers and Enlisted Men Toward Certain Minority Groups. And when they say certain minority groups, what they mean is Jews. It was a survey of how members of the armed forces felt about serving not just with black men, but but with Jewish men. It turns out they were not thrilled about it. When presented with the statement, there is nothing good about Jews, 86% of the enlisted, enlisted men surveyed agreed. 86%. Also, who wrote this freaking survey anyway? Um, As for the question of racial integration, quote, four out of five white enlisted men are opposed to the idea of having Negro and white soldiers in the same units, even if they do not eat in in the same mess or sleep in the same barracks. You want to know how many officers and enlisted men thought black and white soldiers should work and train and live together? How many people were actually in favor of integration? A grand total of 7%. 7% of officers and enlisted men thought the military should be integrated. So given that, given that these were the views of the troops in 1947, what did President Truman do in the following year, in 1948? He ordered that there be desegregation. He said to the military, essentially, deal with it. And they did. And frankly, that's the American way. We're not just a democracy, we're a constitutional democracy. There are rights that are guaranteed to us all by the Constitution. Those rights are not up for a vote. And the reason that's truly important, the reason it's not just a romantic, sepia-toned flashback to the founding of this country is because people always want to vote on rights. They always want to vote on minority rights. And whenever they do, whenever you put the rights of a minority up for a vote, it almost always fails. On gay rights, for example, the issue of gay marriage has been put to a vote in 31 states. And all 31 of those states have voted it down. But because this is America, rights are not supposed to be put to a vote. That's why they're called rights. That's why we have a constitution and why we struggle every day to prove that we still honor it. Opinions, surveys, polling, be darned. This is America, and the rights of man are inalienable, no matter what skeeves you out. And so now the Pentagon is surveying the troops on what they think about serving with openly gay people. The results may very well be as reactionary as what we saw in those surveys from the 1940s. And if we are still a constitutional republic, if the concept of inalienable, inalienable equal rights, inalienable equal rights still means something, the results of that survey will be interesting. They will also be completely irrelevant to the question of whether or not this policy should and will be changed. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Do you see the breeze a-blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? 
Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong? Putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong. First of all, ton of ton of emails, guys asking if I if I am gay and if this was an interview with the gay press. And I have to explain, no, we, we support the uh, the gay community and the gay rights movement and so on and so forth, but I'm not personally gay. And then some other emails. For example, Will wrote, not that I support being naked in the street, but I happen to live in San Francisco, and the events that Porno Pete is talking about are pay-as-you-enter events. No one is there by accident. They pay as you would to be to a, at a private party. That makes sense. Robert says, seems like the people who scream the loudest about gay rights are usually the ones that are most afraid and deeply in the closet. We've heard that before. And also Joey saying, 10 bucks says that Peter LaBarbera is going to be caught with a gay prostitute. I wouldn't be surprised, right? I mean, that would not be at all surprising. This type of thing happens all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And uh, then on the idea that people choose to be gay, a bunch of emails on that. Yeah, I'm sure people would choose to be part of the second most hated and persecuted minority in history just after, after Jews. Makes a lot of sense. And another email, why on earth would you choose to be gay? How does that not make your life harder 99% of the time? I'm from rural Missouri, and I can tell you that if I had chosen that, my early life would have been hellish. It's a, it's a brilliant point. Why would anybody choose to be a, a second-class citizen? Why would anybody put themselves in that position by choice? Why make your life more difficult? That's exactly right. Uh, it's, it's a bogus story. And before we go to break, and Lewis, if we have to go over by a minute, that's okay. Elizabeth Hasselbeck from The View on lesbians. There was a discussion on The View about lesbianism. Apparently, Elizabeth Hasselbeck thinks that older women have a tendency to become lesbians. As women get older... They, they become lesbians. That's her point of view. L listen to her explanation and her analysis of the subject. Why do you think that is? Is that say, as, as women get older, it's just like a been there, done that kind no. of thing? And I'm, I'm no, open no, to No, I'll tell you what's happening. What All the it? older men are going for younger women, leaving the women with no one. <laughs> that's, so that's why they're suddenly sleeping with women? That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I don't mean that you're, so there's a I'm rise, saying, you're though. I don't mean to be rude, people, but... like, level, intelligent. And what does that say about me? me? If the men are evacuating for these younger well, women, as soon as you go to get another woman, we'll know what about you. understands you and if a, all the men who are say you had were in heterosexual relationships you're looking for that but the men right. who are of, of your age yeah, have had similar experiences being, chasing a little being a lesbian one. being gay is not just you know holding hands and walking through the tulips what i understand that, but we've done we've there done are things, things that people do sexually okay thank you for educating me you know elizabeth hasselbeck is so ignorant i almost feel bad for her when i hear that i mean She's making a complete fool of herself on national television, and I don't think she's aware of it. Obviously, if she wasn't a good-looking young woman, she wouldn't be on the show. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The same thing that she claims is turning older women to, to be lesbians is what is keeping her on The View. That's what's remarkable, and, and she just absolutely doesn't get it. I used to get angry at Elizabeth Hasselbeck, but honestly, the more I see of her... I just can't help but feel sorry for her because she really just is so ignorant and, and I just don't think she's even remotely aware of it.
Hey, David Pakman here, host of the nationally syndicated Midweek Politics with David Pakman. If you're anything like me, you're a regular listener to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I want to invite you to check out my show, Midweek Politics with David Pakman. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists you've ever seen. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out midweekpolitics.com, check out my show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the Midweek Politics membership program. I think those are accomplishments that we all should be proud of, regardless of whether it encompasses a hundred percent of what we had wanted in the beginning. And what about the rest that is outstanding? Gay rights, Guantanamo. All of the, I would say this, all things that the president uh, made commitments on and is, uh, is focused on doing. Uh, we have a process underway with the Pentagon uh, to make changes uh, as the president outlined in the campaign and quite frankly even before the campaign. I mean, in, in Don't Ask, Don't Tell, as somebody running for the U.S. Senate in 2004, uh, we have a process to make uh, good on overturning Don't Ask, Don't Tell. What do you say to progressives who, on reading your comments yesterday, say, well, if that's their attitude, I'm staying home in November? I don't think they will, because I think what's at stake in November is, is too important to do that. On tonight's show, you have met U.S. Army Captain Jonathan Hopkins, U.S. Military Academy Cadet Sergeant Catherine Miller, and U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel uh, Victor Fahrenbach, all of whom are having their careers ended right now. The $25 million that you and I, the taxpayers, have spent on Victor Fahrenbach's training as an F-15 fighter pilot, that's down the tubes. That's over. The decade of investment that you and I paid for that built Jonathan J. Hopkins into a striker brigade combat team commander, that's down the tubes. That's over. The $350,000 per cadet training investment that you and I made in building Cadet Sergeant Katie Miller into a top 10 at West Point Yale caliber scholar who could also bench press you if need be in a pinch, that's down the tubes. That's over. None of those three men and women want it to be over. They want to serve. That's why they signed up. But as we take our time winding down this policy that everyone says will be ending, as we shamble toward justice, maybe, we as a country are meanwhile continuing to put the lives of these individuals through the meat grinder every day. Colonel Fahrenbach has filed his lawsuit today because his legal team thinks his discharge orders are due at any minute. Captain Hopkins was discharged this week, Cadet Sergeant Miller's resignation was processed or is being processed this week on the sole basis of the continued enforcement of this policy. This policy that everyone says is going to end when they get around to it, maybe early next year. There's a process. What's the rush? Why are we still kicking people out now in the meantime while we are waiting for the views of the commander in chief and the defense secretary and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to be implemented? If you are changing the policy soon, why not hold off? the ruination of lives under the policy now, in the meantime. Why not do that? I'll tell you why. Because that would take some political capital. That would take some guts. And liberals, according to this White House, ought to be drug tested if we're expecting to see that from this White House right now. Stop complaining and be happy for what you have. Lieutenant Dan Choi and Colonel Fahrenbach and Captain Hopkins and Cadet Sergeant Miller, they're expendable because doing what it would take to save them would be hard. So go ahead and watch their careers destroyed, but stop complaining about it. I talked at the top of the show tonight with Gail Collins about how one way to motivate your natural base for an election is 
fear, to make your base afraid of what the other side has to offer. And that is true. That works. That works on both sides. It works for conservatives about liberals, and it works for liberals about conservatives. But one other way, one frankly less soul-sucking way to motivate your base and to win an election and to keep winning elections and to frankly have history look kindly upon you is to get your base to cheer for you, not just to cheer against someone else. To see you standing up not just to bad guys with worse ideas than you, but to see you standing up for what's right. Because you know it's right. Because we know you know it's right even though you also know that standing up for it is hard. That's how you regain the enthusiasm of your base. That is how you win the respect of your base. That's how you win the respect of your country and admit it. That is actually how you win your own self-respect too. If Don't Ask, Don't Tell is going to end, the president could stop enforcement of the policy pending that change. Why isn't he? Thanks for listening, everyone. So I have a story to tell today that is actually not very applicable to today's episode, but it's in response to an email that I received recently. So I'm going to tell it anyways. And it's basically applicable to almost every other episode I ever do. So I, I got this email uh, just a couple of days ago from a, a, f- a friend of mine. I, you know, I know him. Uh, he's a listener and a member of the show. And he wrote in to say, that uh, that he was concerned, basically, that the liberal media, you know, the truly liberal media, the ones that I promote in the show, uh, too often have to spend a lot of time debunking what's being said in the right-wing media, and and so we never get just a truly liberal slant on uh, on the basic facts of the news. Uh, basically, the news goes from reality, things happen, they get reported and distorted in the right-wing media, and then the left-wing media takes those same events, and instead of just talking about them from a left-wing perspective, we have to reference the right-wing perspective to then debunk it. And and so this causes kind of the, the, the story to always be framed by the right-wing they get to it first and frame it however they want. They completely ignore whatever we think. They just they frame it as propaganda, and and then we have to kind of set the record straight. And so this is where I get to my story. So as a kid, I played I played soccer for about nine years, and so of course every year you have tryouts. And I have this one story that sticks out from one uh, set of tryouts that I did when I was, you know, I don't even know, 12, 13, somewhere in that neighborhood. So during this particular tryout, we played a, a very, very small scrimmage. We had a field set up, probably not more than 20 feet square. So very, very small field, with very tiny goals. So we had these teams of, you know, six or seven people on a side playing on this very tiny field. And of course, every player on each team had a player on the opposing team that they were meant to cover. And then the same would be in reverse. The person you were covering would then need to cover you in defense when your team had the ball. And so it just so happened that the person that I was assigned to cover, we actually had assigned people that we were to mirror, he was, to put it lightly, a total asshole. And not just in this game, he just always was an ass. And so during this game, uh, it also happened that 
my team was the weaker of the two teams. Um, you know, it just so happened that the other team had better players. They were doing a little, little bit better than we were. And so during the game, as I was assigned to, uh, to cover this other player, I would, of course, do my best to, to cover him whenever I could. But when my team had the ball, I would do my best to get away from the guy assigned to defend me. But for whatever set of reasons was going through his head, he decided to just not play defense at all. He just wasn't going to bother trying to defend me and, um, and he was going to do whatever he wanted to do. And so that kind that sounds good at first. You think, Oh, well then you'd be opened and you could get the ball and you can score or pass or do whatever you want. However you want, because you're not being covered. But as I said, I don't know, my team wasn't that good. Whenever we'd have the ball, we didn't, really do much with it they couldn't get it to me whatever so even though i was opened i wasn't really being that effective and now of course when the ball would change hands and his team would have the ball well then all of a sudden he would be opened because since he wasn't covering me i then wasn't anywhere near him so i'd have to find him each time because when my team had the ball i'd make the effort to get away from him so then when he got the ball, I, I wasn't close to him. And so then he would, you know, his team would get him the ball because he would be open if I couldn't get to him soon enough. And then, and the coach would stop the game and say, wait, what's going on? Well, who's covering this guy? He was wide open. And I'd say, well, I was kind of like, I was trying to get to him. He said, well, ah, Jay, come on, you're screwing up. Like you got to get on the guy. And this actually happened several times to the point where the coach was getting irritated at me for not covering this kid when of course the the reverse was true he wasn't covering me so that when he would get the ball he would be opened which left me in the ridiculous position of even when my team was on offense i would actually have to stay near my defender even though he was making no effort to stay near me so that when the ball changed hands I would be near him so I could play defense. Now, how ridiculous is that? Now, I I don't know. Maybe this is a ridiculous stretch, but that is very, very close to how I feel about the media. You know, we could go off and we could try to report straight news. We could make our best effort to, uh, you know, to talk about the stories and put a liberal slant and, you know, do our own version of propaganda. We take the news stories and we say, this is a liberal issue and this is why, and, and here's what it means. And this is why it's good for our side, or this is why it means Republicans are bad or whatever. And I think that would basically be ignored. Uh, for the most part, I think things that are true and, uh, you know, we would be talking about things in a nuanced way and we'd say, well, it means this, but let's be honest about it. And, you know, of course this person has this perspective and so on and so on. And that gets lost in, in the shuffle. And all the, all the while, the right wing would be putting out these giant blaring headlines of propaganda, uh, you know, about Shirley Sherrod or whatever, you know, pick your issue. And they're going to grab the headlines. They're going to have the most incendiary comments and the most, uh, you know, outlandish uh, accusations, and they're going to get the most attention. So if we're not there to play defense, well, then they're just going to get away with it. And so we're left in this ridiculous position of having to, even while on offense, I mean, theoretically, like generally speaking, people who are progressive are in charge of the country. So you could think of that as being, you know, us being on offense, 
But we're stuck in this ridiculous position of having to stay close to the right-wing frame of things so that we can continuously bat down all of their ridiculous bullshit. Because if we don't, that'll be allowed to fester and will grow in the minds of, you know, popular culture, basically. I mean, all, all you have to do is think back to John Kerry and how ineffectively he defended himself against the, you know, accusations that he was, uh, you know, nothing short of uh, an absolute coward in war compared to the giant hero George Bush. And you realize, well, yeah, if you, if you don't uh, instantly attack in the media, then the other guy's message is going to stick. So I, re I responded to my friend that I absolutely agree, but I don't know what else to do about it. I, I don't know what else to do other than keep telling the truth as much as we can in as forceful a way as we can and try to get our message out there. Now, the other thing he mentioned, just in passing, that I'll talk about, is uh, is he said, you know, hey, Jay, I really like, uh, you know, about half of your commentaries at the end of your show, you know, the ones where you really, like, try to make a point and, you know, have a story to tell or something like that. I really like those. The other ones, though, where you just kind of talk about whatever promotion or, you know, help support the show and uh, tell your friends about it, I don't really like those so much. Uh, to which I responded, if I was capable of being interesting any more often than I already am, well, then I'd consider having my own talk show. Now, of course, I'm going to thank a couple of members who make the show possible. Ronald P. signed up for a monthly membership way back on uh, February 27th and has stuck with the show since then, so thank you very much, Ronald. And I apologize in advance, I'm going to butcher this next name, but I want to thank Mufo T., who signed up for a yearly membership on June 2nd, and I want to thank them particularly uh, for going above and beyond the basic membership level just to support the show a little bit more. Of course, uh, members are the backbone of what make this show possible, and I just can't be any more grateful than I already am. So please keep telling everyone you know about the show to stay connected and to spread the word about the show online. Of course, join us on Twitter and Facebook. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you ten times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Just a fond farewell.